Hi, welcome to the ESI What's Next podcast. I'm your host, Alex Feldman, and I'm taking you on a journey to learn about the exciting student entrepreneurs coming out of the ESI program. In the third part of our mini-series, Organizing for a Good Time, we bring back Yuri, Justice, and Rainus so that we can have a dialogue between two different stakeholders around marketplaces. Hopefully through these conversations, we can help people and find ways to create better digital platforms. Yuri, Justice, uh, Rainus, thank you so much for being on the show again. In case someone hasn't listened to the first two episodes, can you give a sentence or two to introduce yourselves? And whoever wants to, to kind of jump in, feel free. Or maybe Yuri, do you wanna, you wanna kick this off? Sure, my name is Yuri Romanikov. Um, I'm, uh, I teach strategy at the Stockholm School of Economics, Riga. Um, I'm also a researcher in, in, into platforms and business ecosystems, and I advise business leaders and investors who invest in these kinds of businesses. Uh, my name is Rain Saniskovic. Uh, I'm uh, really happy to be co-founder of uh, Jalti, together with Justus and uh, Christopher, who unfortunately is not joining us today. And uh, yeah, I myself, I'm uh, currently on uh, academic leave from Riga Graduate School of Law, uh, working on uh, uh, this uh, startup and uh, also my day job as a product analyst. And I'm really, really happy to be here. And it's, uh, I'm certain it will be a pleasure to talk with you, Yuri and Dmitri. <clears throat> exactly. I'm uh, Justus. I'm from uh, Germany. I study at the Technical University uh, of Munich. Uh, I'm a business informatics student. And yeah, in my semester abroad in uh, Latvia at SSE Riga, I was very uh, happy and very uh, lucky to meet Rainis and Christopher, my two co-founders. And yeah, out of the business lab of SSE Riga, we actually decided to push on with the uh, idea we had and with the company we had. So that's where Jollity was born. And we are very happy to be here today. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to start off with this question toward, towards Yuri because I'm, I'm kind of curious about his thoughts. Uh, in the previous episode, we heard the Jollity team basically describe that they're they're building a, a platform, um, but they're only fo focusing, let's say, on on one side of the platform and basically building a proxy for the second side by by building a beta a database to be representative of the other side, but not actually kind of engaging with the other side of of this uh, system. Let's say I'm curious to. To understand what what are your thoughts on let's say an early stage company starting from the space of like okay well we'll focus on one side we know the other side exists but we'll just kind of create a, a proxy version of, of what that other side is until we can build up a enough steam or whatever to to bring the other side to the table i mean look i think if you take a step back and think about what strategy is about right strategy is about value creation value capture this this move is clearly about creating value for the users because what you do is you create a a valuable service by basically aggregating data um, on the market for certain types of entertainment uh, for users who might benefit from that right so that that arguably creates some willingness to pay and by extension some consumer surplus for them so this i guess you could how much value creation there is through that you know we can debate and I don't really have evidence to demonstrate that. Uh, but uh, the, then the question is, you know, what is then the value capture in all of this? Um, so how will you be able to uh, to make this into a functioning business? So um, so I guess it's um, to, to the extent that there is a, a clear vision for how this then becomes from effectively a voluntary service um, or a charity, even if you will, 
to the, the consumer to then become a functioning business. I think to the extent that's there, we can then have that debate, um, right? This becomes almost a way to do something in the market to learn, let's say, where there are value capture opportunities. And once you can kind of figure out what those opportunities are, then you can start to leverage put it, them. Put it, put it like this. If I start a burrito shop, right, and I'm going to say, I'm going to learn about the market by giving people a lot of free burritos, that would be a form of me learning about the market and creating value, right? Because I am going to be giving consumers free burritos and people love burritos. You know, they, they, they'd probably be willing to pay five euros per burrito. I give them to them for free. So every time I give them a burrito, that's five euros worth of value per burrito, right? So I'm learning about the market. But the question is, is the moment I start selling these burritos, will people be buying them or not? Is the question. And I guess that's what I'm alluding to. What are the types of, of things that they should be thinking about or looking out for or whatnot as they need to either make that transition or at some point they need to make that transition, right? So, so what, what should they be thinking about as they're, let's say, doing the free burrito strategy now with the hope of doing the pay burrito strategy later to, to make sure they actually get from point A to point B? I think what you need to look for is you need to basically look for what is the, how much willingness to pay for the user am I actually creating, right? And then therefore, so I'm creating some sort of a pie through that willingness, that willingness to pay, create some sort of surplus for the consumer. How much of that am I able to then capture via the price, right? Uh, which of course is then relative to the other options. And I guess uh, from what I've heard in the previous episode, the team has outlined um, the other options that they think consumers are used to, to sort of engage with that demand space. So you basically need to believe that you are creating more consumer surplus over and which is by definition over and above the price that you charge the consumer um, to uh, that then your competition and uh, you need to be clear for what what drives that willingness to pay right will the consumer be willing to pay as by willingness to pay i mean of course the you know the the, the upper bound of um, of their consumer surplus so what would they be what, what would they be willing to pay for, for my service relative to the surplus they get from competitors. And if you've got a clear view of that, then presumably um, you've got a viable business. Gotcha. I'm going to jump off that point to, toward Justice and Arenas. I'm kind of curious, if, let's say, what information do you have about this consumer, let's say within your space, about, let's say, what the potential consumer surplus is, what might be your ability to capture some of that, kind of putting it in the framework that Yuri is. Uh, can, can you, I don't know, Touch, touch, enlighten us about about those potential things. Yep, I think uh, Justus uh, said it well in uh, one of the previous the previous episode uh, that uh, we are pretty much gauging uh, who are the like most engaged uh, parents or activity seekers by the ones who have already willingly went onto Facebook groups and are already. Uh, for example, Facebook groups already going on there, willingly searching, uh, scouring them, uh, trying to scroll for minutes uh, and uh, with no guarantee of finding anything there. So if they're already spending uh, uh, their time there, we, we've done uh, tens, uh, uh, I think close to 100 uh, parent interviews uh, where we've uh, noted uh, that uh, they would be willing to spend, they would rather spend five minutes instead of 20 minutes, of course, to find an activity. 
especially if it's a really repeatable and dependable way to do that. And uh, yeah, ju just to be clear, we are not charging uh, the customer uh, like a monthly fee or whatever for our service. They would just have to transact through our platform. So like to similarly to how you order food, right? And then it's up to the provider to, if they want to upcharge, if they use uh, the transact through our platform. I guess, I mean, if I, if I just reflect on this, I guess who you charge is in a way is less important, right? The idea is that you've got a pie that you're splitting between, between the customer who gets some surplus, the supplier who gets some surplus, and then yourselves, right? Um, who gets margin, arguably. And then, and then whether, uh, whether it's the consumer paying or it's the, um, the, the producer paying in economic terms is arguably not, not necessarily very relevant. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, right, mm -hmm. is let's say as you are talking about right now, almost, not exactly, but you could almost claim that what you're offering today is essentially a almost like a focused localized search engine for, for a specific topic. And the question becomes, what are you able to essentially charge for search? And if we think about most other search solutions in the market, I don't know, the conclusion I would come to is basically you probably can't charge anything because almost all of them have some form of advertisement model. If, if you, the, the biggest ones would be things like, like Google, um, YouTube is actually crazy enough, the second biggest search engine in the world, but they're, they're an advertising model. Um, you could potentially argue something like, I guess maybe some of the marketplaces are maybe a little bit different because, for example, something let's say like Amazon or delivery services are, are heavy on the search side and then they, they take kind of a cut of the actual transaction, assuming a transaction happens on their platform. Um, but that's just something to, to consider, right? If right now your primary value is, a, is, is as a search tool. Um, so so what tends to be the value capture of search, which, which is kind of an interesting to, to consider. Yeah, I mean, uh, initially, uh, you're definitely right. Uh, at the start, more, more of a search platform, more of an aggregation of uh, useful information, uh, of course, with the relevant filters that parents in the interviews mentioned are very crucial to them and they can't really find other at other places. So that's where we really create value for the families. But uh, if we come back to something we already talked about in the previous episode is uh, initially these small and uh, medium-sized uh, businesses who might sometimes have a hard time to uh, connect to the right customers and to find the families who are actually willing to, to go to these platforms since they are not very uh, present online yet. And uh, a lot of these families might not actually know about them. So I think that's where we come in and where we can actually also grow the pie for all the stakeholders involved because we like yeah make the parents uh, aware of these nice uh, little businesses of these nice activities that they didn't know about before. Uh, and we bring new customers to these businesses. So we also that way create great value to them. We collect uh, a lot of data about their customers. So they actually learn about them, which is, uh, I think a big point as well. So uh, yeah, that's why I see where we will start to really grow the pie for everyone. And uh, yeah, move from being a search engine or move from being a, a database to actually uh, being a viable business as well. Yeah, I can quickly add uh, on to that. Uh, completely agree with Justus. So yeah, although at first we would be the, the search engine effectively, but th that wouldn't be the part we would be monetizing. We would uh, be monetizing effectively leads. So uh, 
kind of uh, almost like in a legion uh, business that, that we're promising, like, hey, you see, like, these are these people who are actually willing to go to your activity, pay, they try to transact through, like, this, uh, our platform, hey, you'll, you'll be able to capture them, because uh, they are in the competition with the other activity providers, uh, and uh, in just in general, they want to be discovered and known. So that's uh, where we uh, generate uh, monetary value. Just on that front, I'm quite curious whether you gentlemen already have a, a view for how you would manage what we call the risk of disintermediation. You know, what is to prevent me as a user from using you as a search engine and then go in transacting directly with the, the supplier bypassing your platform? <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, that's the thing we were have uh, talked, uh, not talked, sorry, thought about uh, a lot previously. And uh, obviously there is that risk, but the, the interesting uh, thing uh, about uh, uh, these activities is that often, uh, uh, not often, pretty much always, uh, parents are looking for new activities very often, especially as uh, kids grow up, uh, they, they just need new activities, new interests develop, and uh, they will be just uh, uh, turning uh, back to the same place uh, uh, where they know that they can find activities and uh, use them uh, so uh, and at that point uh, if they would have to go to the activity providers website where often they do not have a website they can only call them maybe go on site to pay in cash we're removing this friction of the risk that it will be overbooked that day that you have to pay in cash that you have to call someone or just try out your luck and just go and see what happens. So we're removing this friction. As soon as you find the activity, click, book, pay, and you're set there. It's so, basically just the convenience, right? Yeah, precisely. So, because for example, yeah, would would you would you regulate the pricing of this somehow? Because of course, you know, if I, if if um, you selling whatever pottery class to me for twenty five euros, and I then um, and I then call them up. And they say, well, well, why don't you come over? It's 20 euros because, because the five euros is your 20% commission. Let's say, I don't know what your commission is, um, but, but let's say you're charging 20% commission and the, the platform, sorry, the, the, the supplier and the user just disintermediate you because they've already, you've already created the value of matching them. All they need to do now is just settle the transaction. Yeah, that's that's something like uh, if, if we look at our margin, of course, initially we could subsidize it a little and maybe give away a, a small percentage of the margin to the uh, family, to the to user to like uh, make them book through our service and not uh, yeah go around us and just go to the to the uh, provider and get the ticket there. But uh, as you mentioned, also as I understood in your first, in the first episode, that wouldn't be the, the right long term solution because. Uh, yeah, we want to be a healthy and viable business in the end, so uh, that can't be the, the right way uh, in the long term. But uh, of course, yeah, we're thinking about it a lot. Uh, there's also some some other things. I think uh, there doesn't have to be like one uh, solution that solves the problem. The, there can be little things that add up to it. So, for example, one thing we uh, also are looking into is uh, putting in some uh, gamification features, for example, like. Uh, Jollity trophies, if you will, something like that. So uh, a way of showing the family, uh, these are the activities that you did in the last year or the last month. Uh, these kind of uh, types of activities, uh, 
uh, you you uh, did with your kids. These are the memories you created for your kids. And I think that can really be, even if it sounds a little uh, silly, maybe to some of the listeners right now, this can be a big thing because, uh, for example, even with myself, I realize that uh, when I'm traveling and I use uh, the Hostel World app, for example, it always shows me like uh, the map of countries I've uh, visited through Hostel World. And uh, that's why I always book with Hostel World because I kind of want this uh, map to be like showing me, oh, nice, I've visited 10 countries this year. So I really think these small things can add up to uh, solving this problem. Yeah, totally agree with you, Eustace. And uh, also quickly to add on uh, to the uh, part of the, your question, Yuri, about uh, the risk of price discrepancy, simply because of commission and them deciding to then just uh, bump it up however they would be giving us in commission. So at the end, they're like... Uh, uh, their bottom line doesn't change at all. Uh, that, of course, can uh, also be looked at into the specific agreements that we uh, have with them, like legal agreements. So that is something uh, we are aware of and will take into account. Provided that makes commercial sense for them, right? Because because it's, I, I think where I disagree is that it's a legal problem. I mean, of course, you can contract everything, but that, that needs to, to make commercial sense for both parties. I would probably not sign up to say I'm going to price match you or, or maintain the same price unless I believe that creates a lot of value for me as a supplier, right? Right, right. It doesn't have to necessarily be price matching, uh, but uh, just so it's nothing like ridiculous, like twice the amount, right? Uh, and uh, if you look into the, the agreements of uh, the platforms that already exist uh, that uh, have a similar kind of payment structures, they do have a stipulations uh, uh, relevant, like of uh, these sorts. I mean, look, I think I think that's a fair, fair debate to have, right? And and this is not well, the problem I'm pointing out is not really a unique problem when you look at, for example, hotel booking has exactly the same problem, right? With with so many platforms exist exist in there, um, but then of course you you do this whole complex topic behind it that I'm not sure if we're able to cover entirely here. Sure. One thing I was kind of thinking about in terms of let's say things you could do, it seems like let's say for the nature of families and like your, your target group, at least on that side of, of the equation, it seems to me that there would be some form of, of, let's say, social connections that you could build into your system so that you could, let's say, facilitate group activities. You're starting to see this in a lot of delivery apps now um, where, where you can do kind of group ordering and, and, and things of this nature that make it a lot easier if, I don't know, if you have a party or, or whatever to get everyone on board, split out the costs, whatever. I would imagine that, let's say, families would in particular want something like that if they, I don't know, want their child to, to join with one of their classmates, right, on whatever activity you might be talking about. And it seems like if you add in features like that, that could probably add a level of stickiness that would, you know, let's say, uh, Yuri said it might be easy for me by myself to go undercut you, whatever. But it, let's say if we have a group of 10 that we're then trying to coordinate and, and whatnot. I think that the the group dynamics might make that a, a little bit more difficult to, to then you know bring the group separately and, and so on and so forth. Uh, as just a thought of, of how you could tie in a social aspect that I, I think with this group probably makes a lot of sense because um, it, it kind of makes sense for what what the, how they based on their behavior. I, I yeah, uh, it's very true actually. The the families are very. Uh, it's a connected community that uh, they care a lot about what other families think and uh, they yeah, get inspired by other families. So that's definitely something we uh, thought about a lot already. 
uh, we don't think that uh, these community features will, at least not all of them, be part of the, the first version or they, they won't be part of the first version, we can actually say right now. Uh, what we want to be, be there are reviews because we realized that uh, they are not only important for the families, but also important for the, for the providers because they kind of want to see, okay, uh, like what can we improve? And then later on, yeah, we, we think that we want to uh, also include some community features, but uh, we, we are also kind of careful with it because at this point we, we might be trying to create uh, another platform within the first platform and we, are, we might be uh, losing focus a little. Uh, uh, so that's one of the concerns potentially, but uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely looking into some ways of uh, engaging a community on Jollity. I, I'm kind of curious, Gary, from, from, from this approach, what have you seen, let's say, successful tactics or strategy about getting users within a network to onboard other users within the same network? I mean, you talked about subsidies, but I, I think there's other ways of getting them to kind of, let's say, recommend each other, or I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on this side of, of, of platforms? I think this is a very interesting managerial question, right? Because of course, this uh, the notion of sort of word of mouth marketing is not exactly very new, right? But I think um, if, if I'm quite factual about it, then my understanding is that the research into how that works and platforms is not really very mature yet. So, so the answer is we, uh, we don't know uh, whether, whether the, that is a powerful force or not. Um, I guess that will be depend very much on every case. What we do see is, of course, we see examples of just observations of a lot of platforms who, um, who use referrals as a as a tool but typically bundled with a subsidy right so not only do i say you know i'm going to recommend something to Reynes, but uh, but i'm going to recommend something to Reynes and then get a subsidy of x euros for using something which is then basically becomes a variations on the theme of a subsidy so but but, but do you know could this be a force i think the answer is yes how uh, you know what conditions would need to hold for it to be especially powerful. I think the honest answer is that I don't think we know particularly rigorously yet. Andrew, what are your thoughts? Because I think, tell me if I'm wrong, and this might be a little bit of a more kind of technical question. I feel like for most companies, the way that they look at, let's say, these, these subsidies and whatnot, they basically just, I think a lot of them consider it as a form of essentially customer acquisition cost. And that, that's how they structure it within terms of how they, let's say, think about their business um, or whatnot. Is, is that, is, let's say, one, is that the primary way that the companies kind of, let's say, where they put that kind of subsidy cost? Are there other ways, um, open up the conversation? I think this is a very good point. I mean, um, absolutely, a subsidy is a form of customer acquisition cost, right? I think it's, it's not all of your customer acquisition cost, presumably, uh, but it is a form of that. And um, the, the competitive dynamics within the market which the platform mediates would then determine how high your customer acquisition cost could be, right? Because if you've got platforms who are literally flushing that network with cash via subsidies, that means that your customer acquisition cost keeps um, being very high and, and it keeps staying there as, as I've already sort of acquired the customer. Put it like this, you know, I, whenever I, so I'm based in Riga, I order, restaurant delivery there are two businesses that do that walton bolt food 
I always check out both of them because my multi-home cost is zero. It takes me 15 seconds to check both of them. So I check my favorite Indian restaurant on both of them and get the one that will have the, the promo, which is basically a form of continued customer acquisition costs on the part of that platform and basically a reallocation value from, uh, from the platform to me because the platform subsidizes, subsidizes that. So, so um, it is sort of, unless you, unless certain conditions hold that get, create the competitive advantage for a platform, it may need to continue to subsidize me to get the Indian meals from my favorite Indian restaurant because otherwise I'm just gonna go on another platform. So it's less of a standard logic where I pay to acquire a customer as a one-off cost, and then I extract their value you know, over the course of their life cycle. But as I continue to have to pay for the customer to engage me, which is the, the dynamic that's really quite challenging for most businesses, because basically it just uh, requires you to continue to subsidize the consumer or the supplier for that matter. I mean, again, it doesn't really matter much which side. Um, so so th that I think is, is the... So it's right to think of it as a customer acquisition cost, but I think it's also helpful to think of it over time as opposed to in a logic where it's sort of a one-off in the beginning. It's almost like consumer behavior and whether or not essentially you need to almost reacquire the individual customer every usage of your particular platform. One of the, I mean, one of the, the fairly developed hypothesis uh, that has research behind it is, is this notion of multi-homing, right? And whether there are multi-homing costs. So for example, um, in, uh, in restaurant meal delivery, um, there are virtually no multi-homing costs for me as a, as a consumer, right? I can just check out both of those platforms every time. Um, there are, uh, there are, I think the way these platforms would be competing is how can we create multi-homing costs for the restaurants? It would be more difficult for the restaurant to be on both platforms, such that if I then want to order, you know, my chicken tikka masala, I can only go on one platform because the restaurant is only going to be on one platform because it's going to be costly for the restaurant to, to be on both platforms. There are ways of doing that. And arguably, if you're running a platform, creating multi-homing costs is a very, very powerful strategic lever that we do know because that prevents this kind of behavior. And if the restaurant finds it costly to be on both platforms, then suddenly, you know, if I want that restaurant, uh, the tikka masala from that restaurant, I don't, I don't get the subsidy anymore because it's only on one platform. But absolutely though, it's kind of interesting because I feel like on that particular point, um, an area you've seen this play out really interestingly is almost in streaming, where we basically, if you look at what streaming, let's say was, let's say trying to solve for, was kind of the issues with cable and satellite and the fact that you had to essentially buy all these things you didn't want and so on and so forth. Then it went to sort of these platforms kind of in the way that you're saying, but then all of a sudden they split in the way that you described where before I could essentially when it started, I could get everything on Netflix, but now it's Netflix plus Disney plus et cetera. And it's almost looping back again to, oh, I need to be across all the different services to get everything that I want. It's, it's kind of almost come for yeah, a circle. I think, I think, I think, I think they're actually highlighting an even more complex dynamic okay. that, that we see. For example, video streaming is, is that there, there are two elements to it that, that make it quite distinct. One is that network effects there tend to be a lot weaker okay. because, because basically you've got a lot of blockbuster content, right? So um, that I specifically seek out because for example, if memory serves me well, Friends is still the most watched content on Netflix in the US, right? Until it's been sort of handed back over to, to Disney Plus on a cumulative basis. So what this means is that I'm gonna be, if there's blockbuster content, they're gonna be 
and the platform then plays a much smaller role because I don't really care who my Uber driver is as long as they arrive to pick me up in three minutes, right? But I really care, you know, about the novelty and then and then the the blockbuster features of the content that I watch. That's one bit, which makes it a bit distinct from from restaurant delivery, for example, from Uber. And then the other bit that's distinct is is this notion that that um, with streaming, we've also seen a lot of vertical integration. So Netflix will also be integrating into the supply side by creating content of their own, right? Which then adds a whole layer of complexity to our analysis that, again, I'd love to, to discuss having had another three hours. <laughs> sure. Um, okay, so I guess I oversimplified uh, that part of the game, um, but it, it just sort of reminded me of, I, I'm just kind of curious though, maybe trying to tie this back a little bit, your, your point of view or passing this word, what would happen if, let's say you had, I don't know, it doesn't matter, but you had three or four delivery services and your favorite restaurant of, I don't know, Chinese pizza, whatever, and one of them was across each, right? So you almost would, if you wanted to get delivery from all your favorite restaurants, you'd have to have all of them, all the services, otherwise you wouldn't be able to, basically. This, 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 this gets into a very interesting debate about multi-home, right? Because, uh, so in, in food delivery, it is reasonably straightforward where, where for me as a user, the multi-homing costs are very, very low, right? Because it takes me, what, 30 seconds to download the app. It takes me maybe another minute to set up my credit card on the app. That's my startup costs. Checking out a restaurant on the app, again, takes me 30 seconds. The costs are really, really quite low. So, so that, that means that I can multi-home in our jargon, i.e. use different platforms as much as I want. And I can totally do that with four platforms because there is no subscription, right? There is no... There is no effort that I need to put in to do that. Where so, so and, and the levers for uh, for platforms to create multi-homing costs, I mean, they, they do exist. Like, for example, they could create loyalty programs for me, right? So if I had to collect points on whatever, bold food for the tikka masala that I order, that creates a multi-homing cost for me because if I get fewer points and points, let's say, have a sliding scale, then I, I get more value by... Uh, by using one platform. That is costly though, from because again, things like loyalty and rewards programs tend to again be a, re, a form of subsidy, you'd argue, right? So it's not a bad way, but it's a costly way. What you can do is you can experiment with multi-homing costs on the, the supply side. So on the restaurant side in, in this case, um, by, by creating you know, creative commercial structures um, with, with the restaurants, um, again, to, to incentivize them to just stay with you and get exclusivity could be about integrating into their systems to, again, uh, deliver more productivity for these businesses in a way that is difficult for you to run on both platforms and so on. Right? We see a lot of that, by the way, in my favorite, uh, my favorite network, which is ride sharing. Right? We, see, we see Uber and their competitors creating complicated bonus schemes for drivers. You know, do 15 rides between 7 and 9 a.m., and you'll get a bonus of X euros is a form of creating multi-homing costs that prevents a driver from having two phones in their car and running on two platforms in parallel, right? So, so multi-homing multi costs are a massive strategic lever for platforms to defend against having to continuously subsidize one or possibly both sides um, uh, to, to continue people affiliating with them. Awesome. Uh, unfortunately, I think we're running out of time, but but this was was super interesting. I just want to go kind of around the room. 
uh, final thoughts, uh, anything you kind of want people to take home. Um, I'm just gonna do this based on my screen. Um, so I'll start kind of my top top left. Rainus, you're in my top left. So I'll start with you, your, your final thoughts for, for the episode. I believe, uh, well, also having listened into previous episodes, uh, there have been uh, many good points brought up by Yuri that uh, also will take into account. Uh, <clears throat> namely, uh, what I found very interesting is just discuss this multi-homing uh, cost uh, creation, which uh, is uh, obviously not relevant to us at all, but uh, might be, uh, because uh, Relatively speaking, the entry to this market is uh, not that high. It's just uh, time and funds. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it will be interesting to see how that plays out. What I mean, I guess, I guess maybe my final thought is is um, what you gentlemen are up to is um, is a, an interesting thing. It's um, enormously challenging, I think, for a variety of reasons that we discussed. And uh, what I would encourage you to do is, I would encourage you to explore. Um, how businesses like this um, did in the past, because I mean, there there were not maybe not specifically family entertainment, but similar businesses, and even in event booking, you'll find a number of, uh, of examples. Some of them relatively high profile of the over the past few years, and and try to understand what happened to them and why, um, and then what kind of lessons you can distill from that. Because um, much as um, the opportunity is um, possibly exciting. Um, you probably will be well served by by reflecting on um, on case examples that which may, you may have already done, uh, but but there's always I guess there's always more. So um, I'd encourage you to do this kind of uh, strategic research um, as you develop this. Yeah, uh, yeah. I want to say thanks again for for the invitation to the podcast, of course, and uh, I also want to thank uh, Yuri for your uh, yeah for your words and for your thoughts. I think uh, Rengis and I were able to take uh, take away a lot. And uh, yeah, let's see where this goes. Uh, we're very excited for the future. And uh, yeah, maybe in a year or let's say in half a year, uh, we can have an update and you can see uh, where we went with Jollity and yeah, what the future holds for us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ESI What's Next podcast. ESI is a program aimed at fostering socially responsible, environmentally sustainable student innovation through education and new venture creation. We're grateful to the European Regional Development Fund, Printify, SEB Bank, and Remy for their support. Tune in next week to find out what's next in the world of student entrepreneurship.